So hi everyone. Hello. Rabbi Israel Bernat here. I'm here with Fischl cool. Goldig. Um, is it okay, Fischl, to fish take off our masks since we're six feet apart? Absolutely. Okay. Just want to make sure. Want everyone to be. We want everyone today to be affected, not infected. All right. <laughs> so we have a very special program for you today, and uh, our goal with this program is to just inspire you and to make you feel a little bit of Yom Kippur, even though we're in these unprecedented times, we want to feel a little Yom Kippur. So what we're going to do is Fischl and I are going to talk the Book of Life. We call this sealed in the Book of Life. So we'll talk the Book of Life. And then Fischl, uh, since uh, you're a chazin, here we call you Chazen Fischl. <laughs> uh, since you're a Chazen, so you'll sing uh, something Yom Kippur-like for us. Is that okay? Sure. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about the war. We're going to talk about the Holocaust, the ghetto. And then at the end of our program, from what I understand, you have a special treat. And that is you have some songs from the ghetto that you can sing uh for us. We'll try and do our best. <laughs> okay. So we call this sealed in the book of life because the book of life is such something that I think that so many of us are thinking about right now. It's before Yom Kippur, and we're thinking, my gosh, what a year it's been, and how fortunate we are, that we're alive. I mean, unfortunately, so many lives have been taken this year. People that we know, people that we don't know. Somehow we've all been affected by this. So if I were to say this year, right now, with all of your experience, everything that's happened to you in your life, what does sealed in the book of life mean for you? Well, to start with, you go to the master of, of, uh, of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, and you see um, when it says um, the Rosh Hashanah Yechaseinun of Yom Kippur Yechaseinun, which means that uh, they're writing they're writing your your life. And when it ends, and how it ends. So one of the things that says who is going to die, who is going to live, how are they going to die? Is it going to be by fire, by water, and so on? Different kinds of, of things. But one of the things that, is, when I was looking at it, uh, it caught my eye. And it says, Umi Bamagefa. Magefa is a pandemic. That's wow. what it is. That, 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 am I correct? Yes. It, that's what it is. The Magefa is really it's a, a pandemic. So when I came to this, it caught my eye and I said, Wow, maybe, maybe um, they're writing out there. In heaven, and God is sitting there, and with his, 
with his angels and they're writing my story or the end of the story. Uh, and uh, that's in effect what he does to all people on earth. So this this is just one thing that caught my eye. Wow. Uh, the other thing is um, when I come, when I come when you come to a, to an old age. Uh, I'm not young anymore, but I'm just in case you want. Just you in very, case you wonder. You look very young. Uh, well, we'll pass that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You have a. You have to start thinking about the reckoning of what you've done in your life. In my case, how I survived as a child, as a young boy, uh, the things I went through. Uh, because, as you know, I'm a survivor. Um, and then. How I lived my life since I was liberated and um, the different countries that I went through. And I think about all these things from time to time. And also, but particularly in this time of the year, uh, and also my life here in Canada, how I Manage, manage to bring up a big family of children and grandchildren. Uh, and I've been so successful. I find that I, thanks to, thanks to, to, to Hashem, I've been successful in what I've been done. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, a little later on. For sure. Tell, tell me about Young Kipper as a child. Before, do you have any memories before yes. the war of Young Kipper? Of yes. Rosh Hashanah? Yes. I, I remember I was five years old. Well, the first thing you have to remember is, is any, any, um, all my life, um, as a child, uh, I can't remember a Shabbat or a holiday or, uh, you know, particular Rosh Hashanah and Kippur that I wasn't in some kind of a shul. I say some kind because I'm talking about also the ghetto, which we'll talk later yes. on. Um, but I can remember uh, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur uh, my father would take me by the hand and we'd go to show, uh, you know, in, in, in the town where I was born, which was a small town called Milnitsa, which is, uh, which was Polish-Ukrainian at that time, before the war. Uh, today it is U Ukraine. So that's where I was born. And uh, we had, in our town there were about Somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 Jews, small town. Uh, and then my father took me to, to show, and I remember uh, he would push me to the, uh, to the Bima to, uh, 
to hear the shofar. You know, uh, so this, this is a memory that I have when I was five years old. Was it a big shul, a shtibel? No, it wasn't a shtibel. It was a, it was a shul, not very. If I can remember that far, but I it was not very big shul. But there were lots of people in it. And so, wow. And then once the war broke out, you spent time in the ghetto. Well, not uh, not immediately, because in 1939, when the Germans, there was a pact made, as you know, between the Russians and the uh, and Hitler, uh, and uh, so they were going to invade uh, Poland, including that part where I was born, because it was Polish territory at that time. So they, they in 1939, both of both of these big countries, uh, the Nazis and the communists, they invaded Poland. The Germans from in in Poland in the west, and the Russians in the east. And so in 1939, we got the Russian army first, and of course then. They um, then, after a little while, the Russian administrators came into our, our place. Also, also the KBG and uh, yeah, and uh, all the uh, people that run the country. And so we uh, we were there for in that place with them. Uh, not too long, but in that area we, that we were, because that's another story, but in that area, so we were under the, in, in my town and in another town about 30, 40 kilometers away, so we were um, under the rule of the Russian Soviet communist rule. Um, and, and of course, they did allow us to go to synagogue, to go to show. So, um, I can't remember. Yes, I went to show for a showing giver in both towns, uh, in Yanitsa, and where there's another one that we had to move, story on that. We had to move away. We were there for a year and a half, uh, and then returned. But uh, so we went to show in Yanitsa. I remember that sexually, uh, very orthodox, of course. Uh, and um, then we went to uh, that year yeah, that they throw us out from our from our th- city, um, and then we went to the other one. And there was another show, a little smaller, if I recall. And but we went to show anyways. What was the name of the other town? Yezhane. Yezhane. Don't even try it. Say that <laughs> six times fast. <laughs> Yezhane. Okay. Yes. So, um, so I went there, of course, with my father and my my mother, of course. You know. Wow. For for for. 
Rosh Hashanah Yud Kippur. And then what year did you end up being put in the ghetto? Okay. Um, I was in that little town for a year and a half. Uh, then they allowed us to go back. And we'll talk about that in the story. Uh, when we came back, about three months later or so, uh, the Germans invaded our part as well. The, the agreement, the pact was broken. They invaded us and they chased the Russians out. They occupied that whole province, let's say, that whole sector on their way into Russia. Because we were just on the border of Russia. So, um, so we had the Germans. The Germans came in. Uh, we were with them in that town for approximately three, maybe four months. And then they asked, they didn't ask, they commanded that all the Jews in our town and all the surrounding towns and villages where Jews lived had to leave and go to a, to a ghetto uh, was about 60, 70 kilometers away into that ghetto in a, in a city called Borshov. 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 It was a bigger city than ours. And uh, they made a ghetto there. And basically in the sector where Jews lived before. So the, and they didn't take the whole sector, Jewish sector, they just took part of it. And they brought all these people, thousands, I don't know how many, but it was a lot of people, and they brought them into that ghetto. Uh, we were not allowed to assemble in prayer or assemble at any time. So if we went to shul, uh, it was against the law. And of course, the Nazis had one uh, answer. If you did not follow the rules, they shot you on the spot, and that was that. And you remember seeing people being shot? I remember seeing some people being shot. Yes. So it was very, it was very real in your mind that. I also remember seeing people in the street. My my little friends. I was eight years old at the time when I got into the ghetto, and then we were there for a year and three months or four months. And I remember my my friends dead on the street. People you knew. My small kids, eight, nine years old, eight years old. Uh, but this, we're going to talk about the ghetto later. I just wanted to tell you. So, what I remember about the um, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is, of course, a lot of the people didn't follow the rules. In my case, my my father. And some of the other 
a few of the other people organized. Uh, there was one person who had a one room, a big room, sort of. He lived in a bigger room. Most rooms were small. He had a little bigger room. And uh, they made a million there. Uh, there were, if I remember correctly, maybe 20, 20 people, 30 people. Maybe at most. Maybe not even. There wasn't very much social distancing there. <laughs> there, was a, there was no room for that. Uh, and I remember uh, going with my father in, in the ghetto. And uh, they just had a boat filler. And what I do remember is uh, everybody was hurrying. They, they boat filler. Let's go. Because it was very dangerous. Had they found it by chance, we'd all be there. Wow. So you had to do it very quickly. Wow. But they took a chance, and they did it. And we weren't the only ones. I think there were other groups, all, you know, that, that, that were doing that as well. But it was dangerous. But at the time when you were a child, did you know how dangerous it was to be doing Rosh Hashanah? Oh, yes. You know what? You, we knew all the dangers. You see, Rabbi, an eight, nine-year-old became an adult because of the circumstances. The fear and the instinct instinct to live kicked in and you knew that the, what they could do I will talk about it later about wow. that part wow so it's so I just I mean and I, you, you've lived through the most challenging time that I know of at least in my, in, in recent history, you've lived through the Holocaust. Now, fast forward, you're now living through a pandemic. What, what kind of feeling or experience are you going into Young Kipper this year with? Well, When I was young, it was different. When I was a young man, um, I felt that I'm, I'm a survivor. And although when we came here, we it was tough going. I mean, nobody was killing anybody, but uh, to, to just live, live, my parents were working, I had to go to, uh, to yeshiva, uh, and uh, they wouldn't let me work. Uh, my father said, "No way. Uh, you're going to you're going to school." So um, there were bad, there were difficult times when we came here, but we were very grateful to be here. With all the anti-Semitism was there. When you came, there was anti-Semitism here. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're, I don't know. Everywhere we went so far in my life, there was anti-Semitism. And there 
is almost in every country. Uh, it's ingrained. Uh, so, uh, we have to make do. Uh, when we came here to Montreal and go back to the, to the shows, uh, my father found, we, we are living on, on Laval and Duluth. If that gives you an idea. <clears throat> and, uh, the show was also north, not too far from Montreal. Between, uh, well, just near, near some, near Montreal. And uh, upstairs there was a shtibel. But a big shtibel. Probably about half the size of this. And my father went there because it was his kind of people. I believe I told you that. Mostly survivors, right? I'm sorry? It was mostly survivors. No. 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 Just Montrealers. Montrealers. There were survivors there. There were several that I remember. Maybe there were more uh, that I never asked whether they were. Um, but um, so that's when I was. That's where we were in this in this table. Um And then, of course, when with my with my with my parents, my father, my brother, always went over there. Um, after that, when I uh, finally got uh, married, uh, and uh, I was into music and chazonas, uh, also studied voice, and then um, I started to sing in different choirs. Uh, started with the Shorsh I sang there in the choir. And then they had that Israel that was in Utrecht before they moved. Uh, I spent many years there. Uh, I think one or two other synagogues that I, that I sang in the choir. Oh, yeah, Shalom Abokia. You made your rounds. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, uh when I studied, uh, uh, I studied Chazonas, I, you know, with a very great man at that time, he was probably my age that I am today. Uh, but he was a very good relative. And he knew Nusa like nobody else in the world. Every little thing. So I studied with him for about a year. And what was his name? A good man. Good man. Good man. So okay. thanks first name. Okay. So, Dr. Goodman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, he was never accounted as a about Yeah. Uh, the one thing he always told me, he says, I don't care how big a husband you'll ever be. But when you sing, let the people know what you're saying. Let them hear. Don't cover it. Don't let them know the words that you're saying. 
that stuck with me all these years. Wow. And then I started to do kazanas. First, uh, we lived in Chamonix for many years. My kids grew up there. Uh, I was a member of Young Israel, but I, they needed a, a cousin for the high holidays. Uh, there was a, a Shara Shalom. Is it Shara Shalom? Yeah, Shara Shalom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which was uh, conservative. Yes. And um, basically, I ended up coming from a religious home, a very religious home, uh, singing in conservative shows. I was there for two or three years that I sang that show, and then I sang 15 years in and Shah Zion, and 16 years in the Sharet Sedek, like that, you know, and so I did, I did a lot of that. I never wanted to take uh, a stella, you know, a position as cantor. That was not for me. You always wanted to be just a volunteer cantor? A lay, a lay cantor? No, I was, I was a professional. I was okay. getting paid for it. Okay. I was getting paid. Oh, okay. Paid well. Uh, I've had many uh, people that asked me to, to, to do a quiet overcome a hazard. It's not my thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a job for a Jewish boy. <laughs> it's not a job for a good Jewish boy. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't like the politics of it. Right. Having been to many shows in the past, you know, uh, as a in the choir and all that, and hearing the politics that goes on, you know, I decided it's not not for me. And so I was in business uh, for many, many, many years. I'm almost 40, between 40 and 50. Uh, so Doing a different kind of chazanik in your business. Yes. <laughs> I became, in the last 35 years, I became, uh, that's when I became, as you say, uh, another, another kind of chazan. <laughs> I was an auctioneer. A very good auctioneer. At least I've seen you uh, in show doing the auctions, but I can't imagine uh, if, if you can do, if you can do that with the Jews in show what you've done, then you definitely, uh, whatever else you're auctioning. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it was fine. I made a good living. Uh, my kids went through school. Of course, they went to. Um, they started. Uh, they were all Jewish uh, school always, for you know, Torah, and then Herzliya, and of course, then they went to university. All of them went to university, different universities, uh, and so. Today I have a, a big gang that comes usually, usually, not this particular holiday, unfortunately. Is this the first time? No, the first time was Pesach. Right, I'm saying, but this is the first year. Yeah, usually I have uh, anywhere between 18 and 20 people at the Seder. 
and the same amount, if not more, uh, because now there is also uh, there's, there's wives and, and sisters and, uh, and their kids. So, uh, the, the, I could probably have thirty, but I, my house wouldn't take it. I didn't have a room to put it in. You know? I, I know the past few years, your seder, you put it in the basement. But I, I, I no, I don't. That know. was that was the only way to do it. To have the whole gang in. I remember walking by your house Pesach night. Yes, this has got to be twelve or thirteen years ago. Right. And I remember seeing you were upstairs. And there was, I remember the gang. I, I, I had this picture in my mind of the seder. It was unbelievable. The scene, and I remember they were singing. I could even hear the faint singing. So let me tell you how that worked. Um, when I, you know, I remarried, okay, with Lorna. Right. Lorna has a family as well. Right. So what we had to do is I made one Seder. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. For Fischl's well, family... Getting- and one for Lorna's family. That's right. So there were not that many, so we could have it upstairs. Ah, okay. Upstairs, we could accommodate up to 12, 13 kids on the report. I have this memory. Yes. Of, uh, maybe it's got to be at least 12 or 13 years ago, walking by yes. and seeing uh, your Savior. Very Beautiful scene. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we worked since I met Lorna. You know, I look, it was only fair. You know, yeah, of course. I, what do you I, mean? Mishpocha, Mishpocha. That's right. Uh, so that's how I say this. So I think this is a good segue into our next part. And uh, I, we, we'd like you to give us some chazonis, some cantorial inspiration for Yom Kippur. For Yom Kippur. Okay. So I'm going to put my mask back on. You, you don't have to, because uh, I will, because I'm standing up. Okay. He's just getting something. Thank <laughs> you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Hazen Fischel. So, um, we will start <coughs> uh, with, of course, with Kol Nidre, and this Kol Nidre brings us in to the whole atmosphere of Yom Kippur. Oh, oh, oh. 
now uh, I would like to do uh, something that in the Machzor comes immediately after Kol Nidre, but it's a, fa a favorite of mine because it, um, um, and, and I would like to read you first uh, the, the, the English because it's very important uh, for me. And it says, and, uh, and may the entire congregation of the children of Israel as well as the stranger among you who dwells among you be forgiven for all the people for, for all the people acted unintentionally not aware of what they were doing and I think this business of the stranger is very peculiar to me. I seem, and I don't know if the rabbi will agree with me on this, but when it says about the stranger among you, I feel another way about it. Jews live all over the world, everywhere. Every country that I have visited, and let's just say most, countries. There are Jews there. And I feel that they're talking about the stranger, meaning all the people where Jews are, it's a community, one community, and other people are, are living there with us. So when we ask forgiveness, because we, we didn't do it intentionally, we mean the world of the other people and us together. So that's why I, I, I always thought that this was a very special way of saying that God will have to forgive many other people besides just, just the Jews. <clears throat> <clears throat> Venislach lecholadat Venisrael Venagir hagat betocham Ki lecholham Venislach lechol adat b'nei Yisrael v'lager agar b'tocham b'tocham ki lechol Venislach, 
هم دید خون هم Wow. <clears throat> okay. Um, do you want to take another? Do you want to take a seat? Yeah. Or do you want to do another do, one? Do you? No, if you want. To. Whatever. Whatever is good for you. Well, we can do something in Nila. This is the beginning, <laughs> and do something at the end. Maybe at the maybe at the end we'll do at the end, after the songs from the ghetto. Oh, we do that too. Okay, so sure. let's. Uh, Get you back sitting down. All right. Wow. Let's set this up over here. I have the... Uh, I have the privilege of... Um... um with, with the with the uh, permission of Hazen uh, of Hazen Tzvi, uh, who is the Hazen in this in this uh, synagogue, who uh, invited me to do the uh, um, the beginning, we did exactly what we did today. So I'm looking forward. Uh, very much to be in in the uh, un, under the canopy, sort of in that in the, in the tent outside. Hopefully, we'll be able to to, to work there because <laughs> it's going to be extremely cold. Like they said, uh, Hashem is going to make it. It's uh, look, I, I'm sure the Jewish people started off in tents, and now we're back to tents. Right. <laughs> this is this is the, this is our origin. <laughs> yes. We move from tent to tent. <laughs> That's right. So we're back to our origins, back to the beginnings. Right. Speaking of back to the beginnings, I thought that uh, being that Yom Kippur is always a time of reflection, I thought it would be, it would be a really good opportunity to talk about the Holocaust, about your story, your experience. Um. I'm not sure where to start. I've had the opportunity to read your book, an amazing book. Uh, I've had the opportunity to hear you tell your story a few times. Obviously, there's some incredible moments in your life. I'd like to maybe start... Um, I want to start from somewhere in the middle. And my first question to you today uh, with regards to your story is, I know that you lived in the forest. Mm -hmm. How long uh, were you in the forest? Uh, a little over three months. Three months in the forest. Yes. Now, I got to tell you about that. Just, uh, I just sort of thought about it. Uh, there was a problem of getting a minion because when we ran, we escaped from the ghetto, eventually we ended up in the forest. Uh, that's, that's a whole story, but I'll make it very short. Uh, my father was 
in the forest before us. And finally, we, 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 we found it. Uh, and we were together. So we, myself and my parents. Uh, but I do remember one incident. First of all, let me just tell you how it was. We were in groups, in groups of 10, 15. I don't think it even went to 20, but maybe, maybe 20. And there were different, they were in different parts of the forest. And the reason for that was, is because the Germans knew that a lot of people from the ghetto escaped when they cut the wire uh, of the ghetto and people were running out, which is my father with my uncle. They And we stayed for a few more, another day or two. And so we separated and so on. That's a whole story. But finally, when we got there, my, we were asking all the different groups occasionally when we passed by, because we were moving around, if they knew where where, where Goldick is. Somebody said, yeah, I know him. Yeah. He was from a from a little village just outside our town. And he said, yeah, he's with us. So my father finally came to our group, stayed with ours, and we were a family again. But I remember one particular, I don't remember doing, going, like having a minion for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. Um, again, I was nine years old. Uh, but I do remember one thing. One of the men had your side. He had your side. I don't know, his father, his mother, or whatever. And he was looking desperately to make a man. In the forest. In the forest. Yes. And so we didn't have enough men in our unit. It was mainly, there was a lot of women, you know, so, and not all the men wanted to do this, and we should talk about that, and I'll tell you why. Um, and so we had to, uh, he, he was running from one group to another group to get a few guys together, and finally made a minion so he could uh, say Kaddish. I just don't understand He's in the forest. He's running for his life in the forest. Right. And all he cares about is making a minion for his yard site. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. I remember it because my father, oh, yeah, need, of course, need a minion. Uh, but, and, and he, and he, and I was only nine years old at that. Come. Come with me. So we stood there under a tree and uh, we were, you see, we couldn't make any kind of a structure, even out of leaves or, or branches, because they were, the patrols were going, always looking for, for Jews. So it was a very harsh time because by that time it was coming fall. And um, there was a lot of rain and cold. Uh, and so um, 
But that that thing I re, I recall, you know, from that time. The, the reason why I wanted to start in the forest is because right now a lot of people have to be in quarantine. Yes. I mean, they're in quarantine in their warm house, thank God, with food and electricity and right. But, but it's still but it's still a time of quarantine. It's a very difficult for a people. ghetto. A ghetto is a is um, uh, is a quarantine. Right. So I was wondering, and you know, after living three months in the forest, what is your advice for people during this time of being in quarantine? How do you, how do you survive it? Look, I said a ghetto was a quarantine. The instinct to survive is so great that you will do anything and everything in order to live one more day, one more week, maybe one more month. You did whatever you had to do. There was no... That's just the instinct of, of the human being. He wants to live. And if we survive that, I know this is not pleasant, which is the, the, uh, uh, what's what we have now that you have to be for two weeks quarantine. Yeah. Okay. But it's not like anybody's going to come and kill you tomorrow morning. Okay. It's, it's not pleasant by any means. I can't go out. You can't do anything. But you're living and you're eating. Well, you still eat. You still sleep in a decent bed. Shower. You shower and then freely and, and so on. You didn't have a change of clothes, right? Yes, I had something. But yeah, I don't remember it, but I know I had because I had different beds. Okay. My mother always looked after me. So, she she brought with her a change of clothes. For she you. had everything. Wow. I don't know where she kept it because we were not allowed to take a lot of stuff out of town. But she uh, managed. We're in the forest, and my boychik has to look his best. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was not the problem. The problem was food when we were there. But we'll talk about this later. So let's let's um. Let's talk about it. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, I'm going to leave it up to you. Where do you want to okay. start? Well, we're in the forest. So, um, and I said to you before that not everybody was interested in making a menu. You see, there were two kinds There were two kinds of people in the ghetto. And, and generally in survivors. There were very religious people who turned and became totally unreligious to the point where they didn't they wouldn't even attend uh, when somebody needed a minion for, for Kaddish. 
God forgot about us. That's forgot. the end. It was that. And then there were the others. Probably more became very religious. Which means they, they were in a crisis and they turned in to other God. Words, in other words, they were not religious when they were before the war, whatever, and became religious. During the war? Yes. During the ghetto. Or during when they were in some that were in concentration camps. Why do you think that was? It's the way it affected your life. Look. In the forest, that small group of us, there were people that didn't make it out of the ghetto, but like families. So the, the, the man, the, 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 the guy, the husband, made it out. They ended up in the forest. And his wife with, with two, three kids or whatever he had, perished days before. And the way they thought about it, why is, why is God doing this? Why is he doing it to me? I never did anything bad. I didn't do anything wrong, which was my thing that I have in the book. And that was just a feeling. Why? There was no answer. Why? Let me go back to where I start my book. My first, uh, my first realization of what anti-Semitism was is uh, when I went to school, grade one, was under the Russian occupation. At that time, 1939, I was six years old. You had to go to school. Um, and a bunch of kids, a little, little bit older than me. I was going back home after school. I was going home. They grabbed me. They beat the hell out of me, beat me up, threw me on the ground and ran away. So I was crying. And I was crying. I ran to my to, to the house, to our house. And I went in and I told my mother what happened. She said, what, what, what's going on? What happened? I told her. Because in addition to beating me up, they called me all kinds of dirty names, including Dirty Jew. You are a dirty Jew. So I came to that house, I told my mother what happened, and I told them, in addition, they called me dirty Jew. I, and I said to her, why? I've never done anything wrong. Let's go back to the forest. So a lot of people, a lot of survivors, just wanted to make it. If God can do this to them, that was their interpretation, then I don't want to have anything to do with God. 
What about the flip side? And the flip side were also people that became religious. But why? Because of the thing that the will, that God gave us the will of being good or being terrible. So there are terrible people around, okay? And they do the killing. Um, we cannot ju judge what God is doing, how he is working, his, his way of, of doing things, why, there's many whys, and there's no answers. You have to make it the answer in your particular character and how you feel about it. And a lot of them said, we see the bracha and the klala. God told us about it. We see the blessing and the curse. Correct. The blessing wow. and the and the and and so we must expect the 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 curse to appear at some point, some point, because we are not always as good as God would like us to be. And they saw the Shoah as the curse. That's the way they looked at, it. and therefore they became religious. Wow! Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Do you believe in God? Yes. You do? I do. How? After everything you've seen, after the Holocaust, after having to, I mean, and you'll tell the story, which is an unbelievable story, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm uh, doing a spoiler here. No, no, you're not. <laughs> after, after, after being under a mattress and a Nazi or an SS not finding you under a mattress. Right. After going through the Holocaust, how can you still believe in God? You know, I get that question from the many, many, many hundreds of uh, groups that I talk about my, my uh, story, in particular from school children, from high school children, and it's sometimes also from when I go to university and I speak about my story. And they, they ask, they ask two, the, two, the two things that they talk about at all times, I get those questions. One is, where was God in Auschwitz? And the second one is, do you believe in God? Wow, so it's a, it's a common question. That common you question. Um, I say I do. When I, they ask me if I believe in God, I do. But to tell you the truth, I ask, I still have questions. So you and believe in God with questions? With questions. With questions that I don't think my generation of people of, will be able to answer. Maybe some other day, maybe Mashiach, and will be able to answer the questions that we have. Because we 
I am not at the point in our history to be able to have the kind of brain power that is needed to understand what God is doing. I don't know if it makes sense what I'm saying. Absolutely. So we are not at that level. So we must think that perhaps God has a reason for what he is doing. And, and, and it's funny because I think that I've been getting these questions a little more now. And, and yes. I'm asking this to you because it's something people are thinking about. And, and I'm going to make it a little more specific. Yeah. How can a good God allow such evil to exist? I have a, another way of, of putting it. God is God. Good or bad that you experience doesn't change the way God is running this world. Yes, he gave us the will. What we want to choose, right? And we choose to be good or we choose to be bad. You can become you can become a Nazi or you can become a, 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 a Holy Spirit. A Rebbe, a Rebbe for the, for the uh, Lubavitch uh, group. Okay? Uh, and for good, for good, and for, and for, and for evil, well, not, not the evil, but the other way, for the, for, for the blessing and for the curse. So we cannot, we should not be able to judge what he is doing because we are not in his level. So on I, his level. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that the Holocaust is the act of men. It's the act of Hitler. It's the act of in, individual people who chose Correct. to do evil. Correct. Not God. Correct. Which means that free choice really exists. Correct. There, there must have been moments in your, in, in while you were running, while you were, uh, whether it was, you know, you know, I know some of the stories already. So, right. so there must have been moments in that time that you thought that was it. My life was over. Oh, many times, many times. Again, the fear the anxiety that you have at that particular moment that you think you know that you think that this is this is it you're going to die very in the next few seconds just makes you gives you the strength to be able to say all right, let me, let me, let me, let me just go through this. Maybe I'll just move or maybe I'll, maybe I'll run over there because you know, this is not good. Uh, under that tree is maybe better. You know, let's, let's do something. Let's, let's organize something. Wow. And, and, 
and you want to live even in this horrible places that we were with very little food and not even good drinking water and in talking the ghetto and, and you survive we were before we between the the ghetto and the forest we were circling around uh, in, a, in a field for at least a week and maybe more because we didn't, could, didn't couldn't keep time and so on but it was at least a week okay in in the fields where the corn was growing very high and we were and we were hiding there and 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 we ate uh, berries in the forest. We were, we were fine. Some of the guys, some of the men, including my father, would go out sometimes at night and and cut down some uh, some um, corn, some wheat, little things, and we found berries in the and there, and that's what we ate. For eight days or more, my mother and I, that was because my father had separated. For eight days, we were walking around in the fields. And, and, and we got lost. And, and we found a way. Is there anything existential that goes through the mind of a nine-year-old during this time? Again, what I told you before, is a eight, nine-year-old kid becomes a 29-year-old kid. He's no more a child. He knows the danger, the fear of, of, of being found and being killed. All children become in the ghetto. We had eight, nine-year-olds that had lost their parents, or there were many, many uh, children like that. Orphans. Orphans. But they would find a way to, to survive. Because they were small, and because they, were, they wouldn't be found so fast, they were smuggling in the ghetto. How? If you had some money or some jewelry or something like that, you'd give it to the kid. The kid would go in ex through the wire, okay? Through the wire, he would, uh, uh, he would exchange it for food and bring it to whoever gave him the money and he would get like a, a commission, I guess <laughs> you may call it. Yeah, he had something to eat. Commission was food. Correct. Okay. And they survived. Some of them survived. Was, was, was that the money in the ghetto food? That was money that people had from before. But what are they going to do with it? That's right. They don't need it for needed food. So they did this kind of thing. And they were eight, nine, ten years old. Wow. That was going on. 
So you, you can't look at them as an eight, nine, ten year old. You have to look at them as a thirty year old. Correct. Because they already had gone through. Correct. And when the program, when the one day killing started, because they had those, they, the Germans did, would do it um, on most holidays, Jewish holidays, they cho- chose a day. Wow. To do that. Right. So uh, they knew that they had to hide with all of us, with all the other people in the ghetto. So these kids knew that they had, oh, they're, they're starting to shoot, starting to kill. Oh, yeah, better hide. And they used to come and hide in different places, wherever, wherever they could. And it was specifically like Jewish else. holidays. A lot of it, a lot of the, uh, the, 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 how should I say it? They call it in German, Aktion, Action Day. It really was a killing day, massacre day, a program called so a daily. It could be but, everything was fine in the ghetto, I mean, fine, relatively speaking, right? where people were just going about yeah, and trying right, to live, right. and one day... Everyone's hiding. That's correct. They had come very early in the morning. Did you know they were coming? Well, we heard the shooting start. And we... Should I tell you the story? Please. Uh, Okay. So, everybody had to hide somewhere. And then every... We were in an apartment building. And... We, we, we were looking for a place to hide. Uh, prior to that, we did different, different hides. But finally, we had the, in our building, there was an engineer who devised something very special for us to hide. Outside, on the, in the back of the building, there was a toilet, an outdoor toilet. By the way, they weren't as nice as the outdoor toilets here. (laughs) So, and when you opened up the door to the toilet, there was a uh, a kind of a a wooden platform, okay? So that you, when you sat down, you wouldn't put your feet in in the mud, okay? So there was this wooden, uh, a wooden, kind of a platform. What he did, he lifted that platform and he got all the men from the apartment to start digging. They made a run, a, an opening and they, get, they, they were digging down, down, down until a certain level and then they made it wider and longer and higher, you know. Where'd they put the dirt? Huh? Where'd they put the dirt? Took it out and spread it out outside, on the street, or in different places. That wasn't easy. No one saw them. If they saw them, they weren't alive. So, so you had to do it. And these men took some time. And they made this open, they made this 
They were digging and made this thing. And the minute that we heard shooting in the morning, because they would come like seven o'clock in the morning, we heard shooting. Everybody in the apartment building ran down to the to that to that uh, where the toilet was, the opening was, and everybody went in there and stayed there till the end of the day when the shooting stopped. How many people was that? You know, I want to say 40, most likely, maybe more. I was quite big. Do you have any memories within the pit? Yes. Yes. Uh, there was one memory in one day. Okay, so we made this, but we needed to breathe. So he, he, they made, um, so here you have, you know, this thing where everybody was there and we made on the side uh, two holes sort of going towards the, the outside and they, and they put uh, a kind of a netting on, on that opening, not big, maybe this size or little bigger, okay? And 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 that's gave us air to, to come in. But one day uh, that thing got blocked up and the people couldn't breathe. In particular there was also, believe it or not, a baby with us. And that baby was choking. So they got together and they asked for a volunteer, for volunteers, do it volunteers, to go out and take the dirt or whatever that was that was blocked and move it away so we can have air again. But to go out in the middle that program that was going up was, was the, the chances of you getting seen and shot were, were, were the odds were with them, with the, with the killers. But it had to be done because we have a lot more dead. So two guys, two young guys, they volunteered. They went out, unblocked the two things. It was no no big deal. It's just a little bit of crap enough just to block that little netting that was, you know, where they and they just unblocked it and we had the area. And they came back. And they came back. Wow. So as I said before to you, Rabbi, you had to do what you had to do in order to survive. Whatever it took, whatever it took, you had to do your thing. When I told you, go back to the fields now, 
we were spotted because there was a little roadway in the fields for the heart that was a roadway for the farmers to get to their crops to bring them in or seed or whatever that and we were, we were just we were being careful not to go but one day we did we come came a little close to the to the road and a bunch of kids craning 16 17 year olds I would say they saw us and so they made a circle around us you and your mother yes me and my mother they picked up stones and they were just pelting us from all sides at us they knew you were Jews they you know the Jews looked different uh, they wore clothes different clothes uh, this was very primitive Ukrainian people you have to remember with the white the white uh, let me say, if you see some, if you've seen in movies, for instance, the uh, in uh, Mexico, how the some of the people that lived in the in the small villages with all all white uh, kind of uh, you know shirts and pants, but the Jews wore Western clothes. But that, that was just one way. But also they saw we didn't look like, like that. And they re recognized us because everybody knew that a lot of Jews had run out of the ghetto in the community. So they figured it out. And then they started helping us. My mother was banging them up. Don't do this. We've never done anything bad to you. Why are you doing this? And you want to know. Said the farmer that owned that piece of land where this was happening saved us. He came over, a very good guy, and he chased him away. And that's how we survived. Because my mother always told me that those guys were, with the throwing of the stones, they would have killed us. They would have stoned us if it wouldn't have been for this, for this guy. You remember the name of the farmer? Never found him again. Really? And you looked for him? Yes. But we were going around in a big, huge area of all fields with corn growing high and, and different kinds of things. Could not find him. We didn't know his name. Never told us his name. But he took us to his house. To his house. And we were bleeding, both my mother and I. So he, he gave us some bandages and washed us up, told us to wash up, gave us something to eat. After not eating much for eight or ten days, you know. And uh, then showed us the way. Go, you see, this, this way, that there left, and you'll be in the forest. Okay. Wow. So these are these are moments that uh, uh, you cannot forget.
But we had to do what we had to do. Uh, so to come back to what you're telling me about being quarantined, I, I, I still remember the feeling. Except my mind was a little bit much stronger than the average quarantine we have in this country or any country. Yeah. Um, and so we survived. We, we survived because we wanted to survive. You see, to tell you the truth, there were some people that really didn't want to live anymore. After, after things, people that lost their, their children and their wife and, uh, you know, and, uh, they were never the same afterwards. I had a, my first, uh, first wife's cousin, the man that was in three or four um, camps, concentration camps. It was in Auschwitz, it was in Buchenwald, it was from one place to the other. And each one was worse than the other one. He lost his wife, three children. Two or three, whatever. He, he came to Montreal uh, and he met a cousin of my ex wife. Um, and he started another life. But I can tell you. He was never the same. Broken man. He would wake up at night screaming. By the way, Lorna tells me that from time to time I do that too. Not screaming, but talking or, you know, shaking. I, I don't know if she tells me the truth. But you don't have any conscious <laughs> feelings like that? No. And she, you know, she wakes me up and it's gone. But, uh, so he was never the same. And he was a very nice guy, a learned guy, uh, not religious, uh, but came from a religious home. Mm -hmm. I'm just checking the camera. Yeah. So, this was one of, and he... He never went to religion again. I couldn't speak to him about God or about synagogue or about anything like that. I didn't want to hear about it. So he was one of those. Yes. When, and, and you can't question. You can't question it. After no. going through that, losing your whole family, you can't question that. Correct. Not only did he, and he lost his parents, uh, and, and the uh, immediate other family, you know, the, the cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody perished. Wow. So this was, so again, we come to the same story. You, you stop at 
one question, and that's why. And you can interpret it either way. Do you ever think the opposite? Do you ever think, why was I so lucky to survive when so many others didn't? That's, <laughs> it's, it's really, I'm very happy that you brought that question up because I never thought about it when I was young. But now, in the last years, as I am growing a little older. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, I do ask, why was I, why did they, why did I survive and all these other people that I was with in the ghetto didn't? Why? Why did the kids that I was playing with the day before on the street were lying dead right after, the day after? And I was, and I survived. Why, why were most of the people in the forest didn't survive? And we did. In the same village where we were hiding for two years, didn't speak about that yet, but in the village where we were, um, we were hiding, on the other side of the village, there was another family, Jewish family, and they were hiding, also at the farmer's place. Somehow, They've, somebody talked, uh, you know, to the, they found them and they killed them, killed the whole family. They came and they, they shot the whole family, the Jewish family. And then they shot the whole family of the Ukrainian farmer. Who was hiding them. That was hiding them. And that was the way to scare the people not to, not to save Jews. Because saving Jews meant risking your life. Correct. Risking your life. Now, we're, when we were in the cave for two years, so the first year we were able to come out and in the middle of the night, very quietly walk around in the yard of the, of the farmer farmer's house uh, and just for half an hour or an hour just walking around and getting some nice air that was the first year the second year when that thing happened the farmer got very scared he had a wife and three kids you know uh and so he said, no, sorry, can't, can't come out at all. So the last year that we were there, we never came out of the cave. Wow. 
What was that's what you that's what you call quarantine. We're all we're all catching uh, about two weeks, <laughs> and yeah. you could have come out of the cave for a, two, years. two years. Two years. Two years. Wow. Till forty-four. From forty-two. To what 40. did you do all day? That's that's also not only because the three of us, my, me and my parents, my aunt and uncle, who were both doctors. And my cousin, who was three years old at the time when we got into the, into the cave. So the, the three of them, so we were six people in that cave. A cave that we dug ourselves together with the father. And then we were there. What did you do? Okay. They were both doctors. And they had, when we went to the ghetto, they didn't go because they were the only doctors in town and they needed it for the Ukrainian population. Uh, and also the Germans wanted them for their, their own sake. They needed a doctor and they were getting sick. So they were privileged and they stayed in that town of Mienica, where I was born. But when But so when, no, no. But when, uh, where was I? Uh, yes. So they were privileged to stay in that place. But uh, when they finally had closed the the ghetto, they liquidated the ghetto. Uh, they were going to liquidate all the people that were working for them, such as doctors and nurses and people that worked for, for them, uh, maybe and engineers or whatever. They had people doing uh, carpenters, plumbers, whatever. They were going to get rid of all of these. Most of them were sent to Treblinka, to the camp, extermination camp. Uh, so their life now was very, very dangerous. So they started to look for another place and they found us that actually my uncle, both, by the way, I said both of them were doctors. He was treating a little kid and the father of that kid, he, he would, he, my uncle asked him, maybe we can hide somewhere and I'll find you a place. And he did. And that's where the that that's where we were hiding in the yes. cave. Yes. Well, and what did you do sense. when two okay. years in the cave? So when we went there, we didn't have much to bring with us, but they had time, a little bit of time. So they brought some of their books, for instance, their medical books. They brought some other books, Polish. Uh, Ukrainian, and so on. And my father, the only thing he brought was a little sitter. We had to keep that kid of three years old, a three years old, 
A three-year-old doesn't want to be quiet. They want to yell and, and do things. So in order to make her quiet, the parents, my, my uncle and my, my father and my, and my mother, were teaching her how to read three years old. So they, so they, um, so they started, they took a book and, and, and would say, uh, see, we told them the letters. She, she had to learn the letters. And then for months it was going on. Ba, pu, le, la, lo, pu, pi. Until she started to put the letters together to make words. Okay. And, and she was busy with that. She liked it. She wanted to, to read. And so they taught her in Polish and in Ukrainian, which is a different alphabet, the Russian alphabet. Uh, okay. And my father was teaching her to read from the Siddur. Same thing. When she got, when she got tired of one, Took another one, and uh, so he, he had on him the. the so office. the whole time you're just occupying this three-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> but we. The truth is, we didn't have much. What was her the name? farmer would the farmer would um, once in two weeks or so would bring us a a, a, a newspaper. would bring us a newspaper. So we knew that the front was coming closer to us because the Russians were, push, were pushing you, you know, wow. back. So that was how you had your information. So we knew something was going on. It could have been to, uh, it, could be, it could have been something from, from two weeks before, right. but it was enough to give us an idea where the front was. What, what was your cousin's name? Uh, Deutsch. No, so what was the, the girl's name? What was her name? Oh, Eva. Eva. Eva was, is my cousin. She's not three years uh, old anymore. <laughs> she, she was six years younger than me. I was nine and she was six. She was Where three. did she live? I'm sorry, they were in Montreal. Oh. Today, that little girl is a world-renowned geneticist. Well, the only books she had were medical books. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was she was a brilliant student. And she was at McGill when she was 16 or something. Wow. And so, uh, and, uh, so well, if we want to finish... Now no, yes. it's okay. I I I want to get to one one more story yeah. before we before we because I want to finish. tell you the story how we how we uh, finally left I, I, and also what happened to the people that saved us. Yeah, so I, I like to hear that story. I want to hear the story of the barn and when you were almost found. Uh, you mean the, the shed? The shed. Yeah. Uh, I can explain it 
Very well. Let me get a piece of paper. Sure. Okay. We were in a shed. So. It was the, we found out that it was, this was the, when they liquidated, when they liquidated the ghetto. Some guys cut the wire, Jewish guys, and people were running out. And some of them ended up in the forest. Okay, so now, imagine there, there was this wire, and then, um, and when you cut the wire, on the other side of the wire was a, a, a road that was going. Um, so, and the people were running out. The, the Germans found out that there was a breach in the wire and people were running away. So they came with two trucks with machine guns that were on, on the top of the trucks, one on each side of the street where that wire was cut. And as people were running through, the machine guns were just going like that, just mowing down them. So the street on the other side was full of dead people. Um, this was the time when we separated because everybody was pushing to get out. And there were thousands of people. Everybody was pushing. That's where we separated. Another uncle and aunt and we were together. We were together pushing also to get out. My, my, my father and my uncle made it across. My mother and I, and my aunt, another sister of my mother, the aunt and a cousin, whose name was Hewlett, uh, he, 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 we didn't make, we, we were further back because we separated, people were pushing. By the time we came to that, to the, to the wire, my mother looked down at the, what was happening. She saw all these dead people. Machine guns were going, were, were working. And she said, we'll never make it. Let's go back. And so we went back to find a place to hide. And so at the back of a, a building, there was a, an old shed but people would throw out things. The shed, let's say this is the shed. I'm doing <laughs> both sides music. Uh, so the shed uh, was here uh, and it was separated in the middle with not with a wall, but with um, just planks of wood going from the top to the bottom. And there was like between between each plank, maybe uh, 
three, four, five inches from each other. So it wasn't, okay, so now what happened was my mother and my aunt decided to go back. So we find that shed and my and, and in the shed, there was stuff that people were throwing out. So on one side of the shed, there were two huge basins because in those days they were washing by hand and no machines especially in that area of the world. So um, there were these big, huge, round basins. And so my aunt and my, uh, and my cousin went on this side. They turned over the basin, put it on top of them. My aunt was very small, so, I was, so was my mother. Maybe five footers. At most, so uh, and they and they uh, so they turned over the the basins, put it on top of them, okay, and uh, were lying under those things very quiet. My mother and I went. So that was this side. My mother and I were on this side. There were two. Huge, big mattresses made out of straw. In those days, they were doing it out of straw. So there was a mattress here and another mattress here. And here was the, let let, let us say this is the door. Okay, this is the shed. So the mattress was lying here and I was lying over here near the door. Uh, After about maybe what looked sounded like two years, two months. Oh, it actually was probably two, two hours later. Two hours later, two policemen, Ukrainian Nazi SS division that had a whole division of killers. That's all they did. They killed in Ukraine and then they even brought them to Poland to, to do their thing over there. The worst kind of killers. Tell you a story about this later when we get through. So we're here, we're all lying. We're, the two of us, my mother and, my, and myself here, and my cousin is there and my aunt is over here. So two guys came, one was standing outside the other one came inside. The first thing he did was he lifted. If this is the if this is the uh, the basin with his rifle, he lifted this up. Okay, because they turned it over. So he lifted it up. Saw my cousin. Shot him right there. And then he went to. This to this side up on top where my hand was lying under the other basin and shot her right there. Now, I just want to tell you so that you'll understand. As I said before, that wasn't a real wall in between us. So we heard everything that was going on. 
the shooting of both of these, my mother's sister and her son, my, my cousin. So now they're finished with this side. They come over on the other side. One guy is standing here. The other guy goes inside. Here is the mattress for me. And here is the mattress for my other. Okay. The guy comes with his rifle. And he lifts up this corner. I was lying on the diagonal. So my feet were here. And my head was here. Like that. He lifts up that corner of the um, of the uh, mattress. mattress. He lifts up this corner. He doesn't see me. And he turns to the other guy and he says, "Ah, oh, there's nobody else here. Let's let's get the hell out of here." So that's about the closest I came to dying. The only other thing that I can add to this is when they shot my aunt and my cousin on the other side, they didn't die right away. So we were lying there very quiet even after they left. And I can remember my, my, my mother saying, shh, not a word, don't move. But we were listening to these two people. Um, they were they were not dead. They were still. What's the word? Uh, uh, we could hear him in pain until it was silence. We stayed there my mother and I, until, until it was nighttime. When it was nighttime, we ran to the wire that was cut because we had to get out. We couldn't stay there anymore. We had to do something. So we got out. We got out there and this is when we went into the in, into the fields that I told you about, and from there into the forest. Wow. And from there to the uh, village and to that farmer's house. And the cave. And the cave. Two years. Wow. Wow. I went through a few things in my life. A few things. It's even hard to, to catch my breath after hearing that. Wow. Yeah. And and I want you I want you to understand, see this young lady is listening to that I my story is not on the highest level by any means. There's probably two levels of harder hardship hardships and and survival stories. You know. People that were, for instance, in concentration camps, like I told you about that cousin that I have, and some of the people that 
work with me together at the, uh, we tell our stories. That's what we do we, uh, on a daily basis. We tell it to, to, from grade six to university level. Uh, and everybody has a different story. There's no two stories the same. Because you may call it God's help, or you can call it luck, whatever you want to call it. That's what it took to survive. What if he took his rifle and picked up the mattress on the other side? It's just That's mind-boggling. Right. Exactly. What if? Yes. Wow. I knew of stories from survivors where they took him to the, which they did in my town as well. You see, they had, they made this, these big, huge graves going from one side to the other. And then they would line up people, okay, which is what they did during the, during the, those pogroms, you know, the, during these massacres. And they would line up people, and then they, on the other side, where the, where the, the guys with the, uh, with the guns, they would just line them up, shoot them, and then they would just throw them in, into the grave. This was going on all over Europe, okay? Uh, but this particular guy, uh, in a, he lived in Poland, just outside, outside Lodz. They had those, that's the killing place, the killing. And they, they had machine gun. The machine gun was just going, here was a lineup of people. They lined you up and they, you fell into the grave or they pushed. It was going and there was, he was like with a whole bunch of people and the machine guns were going and people were falling in. And, but nothing happened to him. Uh, he didn't, he didn't even get a bullet or anywhere, anywhere near. But what he did is he fell down on the ground. So they, they didn't know he was dead. And why? Why? Why me? Why am I saying? My, Understanding and what, what I think about it is that maybe, just maybe, I survived with God's help so that I can come here and talk to a young lady like this and I talk to a rabbi like this. And all the people watching. And all the people that were going to see it to understand why there's no answer to it. It's luck. Nothing but luck. Because if he, he would have lifted the other corner, I would be dead. And so would be my mother. Wow. I, I have one last very difficult question for you. Yeah. What do you say to the deniers? It's becoming so common today. So many years later, as you get older. Okay. What do you say to the people who deny it? First of all, deniers 
are anti-Semites. Let's get that straight. They are nothing but anti-Semites. They hide it under the business of a denier. No, that never happened. And I tell that to all the people that I see, you know, on a daily, I say daily basis, I probably do it like two a week. I, I average maybe a little more. And they speak to hundreds of kids uh, and, and, and also, um, you know, adults. And I tell them that um, everybody has a story. And most of the time, everybody's story is different. And everybody survived somewhere along the line because of luck. Because otherwise they would be in shelters. They took thousands, a million and a half. This is the other thing I tell them. Six million people perished, of which there was a million and a half kids, children. So imagine Montreal for a moment. And you have one kid that gets captured on or somebody kills him, or something happens. Okay, he gets killed, and he dies. The outcry that happens in the city, the whole province, and the cops get involved, and the and the the, the, the courts get involved, and everybody, and it's 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 a it's a humongous tragedy, which it is. Now multiply this by a million and a half children. Wow. It's, it, it, you know, many times when I think, I go back and think about some of the events, I don't believe them. I keep thinking, that didn't happen. I'm just, I'm just dreaming that. But I'm not because my parents were... <laughs> And they and they were and they felt the same way. But it's hard to imagine that a person or any of the survivors that you see, how 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 do you get through with this? Now I go back of why did I survive? And I like to think that with God's help. Maybe I survived so that I can sit here and tell my story. I have to ask one more question. Okay. Just one more. <laughs> we'll forgive you, right? <laughs> I'm tearing up and just almost short breath just listening to your story right now. Right. How do you tell it twice a week? How do you relive this twice a week? You know, survivors, all of us, didn't speak about our survival for many, many years. 25, 30? Never spoke about it. You never spoke about it. When we came here. You never said a word. Nobody talked about it. None of the survivors. Nobody talked about it. 
Why? There were two reasons. First of all, when we came here, we lived in the Jewish community. The Jewish community didn't want to hear it. Our neighbors did not want to hear it. That's one reason. They didn't believe it or they just didn't want to hear it? They didn't want to hear it. Did they believe it? They knew there was something going on there, but not that much. But they didn't want to know the rest. The second reason, and the most important reason, is that survivors wanted to, to get back into life, into a normal life. Here in Canada, they started to live and, uh, a regular life. Like I had to go to school. My parents were both working. We had a, we had a rented a house on the third floor with a walk up all the way. <laughs> Today I wouldn't make it. But uh, uh, so, and we lived over there and it was fine. It was fine because it was much better than what we had prior. Okay, so they didn't want to talk about it. Eventually, when we got a little older, especially the old people, older than me I'm talking about, which I can't find today. Nobody's older than me. So, uh, uh, we, um, so they started to talk about it. Let me put it to you this way. I went to a yeshiva. Of course, they were all Jewish kids. For four years, for four years that I was there, I did high school over there. Nobody asked me about how did you survive. And they knew you were from? Absolutely, they knew. I couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak French. It took me six months to catch up to the, to the class, to learn. And that was another thing that I had to do. But nobody ever asked. And there were, there were two of us in my class, two survivors. Another guy, Moshe Werner. You know who Moshe Werner is? Yeah. He's the rabbi in Shulam Van Horn. Yeah. He was in my class. Wow. Okay, Moshe Werner was there. I was very, in yeshiva, just to tell you, uh, I know you always tell me I, I should be what I am, <laughs> but I almost decided to go for it. To be a rabbi. He, he became, he, yeah. became, he was ahead of me uh, about two years. Did he ever ask you your story? Did you ever ask him his story? Did survivors no. speak amongst themselves? No. Wow. Because in those years, when we were together, nobody spoke about it. Everyone wanted to go on with his life, work, get married, go to school, whatever, whatever a person needed to go on with life. You couldn't just think about this. Now they are the, they are the answer to the question. How do I do it now? Because 
Six years ago, I went to the uh, March of the Living. I had been to Auschwitz before, but this time I saw Treblinka and some of the other camps. And I got old also, you know, by that time. So I decided that, and I started telling the story to the, to the, to the, there were 100 and, 110 or 120 kids. That was the first time you told the story. So I started telling the story and I, I told it to my kids before. They knew about it. The first time you told it publicly. Yes. So I started telling the story as we traveled from one place to another in Poland. And I spoke to the kids. And when I came back, uh, I had a friend of mine who had been telling stories, the survivor, and, and I called him up and I said, I want to, I want to do this. I have a, I tell my students and my people that, 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 that I have a mission. I have a mission in life, a responsibility that I have to tell my story so that you people will know what it means to have a Holocaust and what a Holocaust can do, what people can do to other people. And I tell him that, and I tell him, this is my obligation. I have to tell you what happened in the past. And I tell them at the same time that you have an obligation too. And I tell them your obligation is like if you hear a witness, you become a witness. Your obligation is to make sure, number one, is that there's not going to ever be, ever be a, 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 a a kind of a Holocaust again. That's number one. Number two, you must fight anti-Semitism. If you're in school and you're going to be at the university, you're going to find deniers. You're going to find uh, uh, anti-Semites. You have to do something about it. You've got to tell them that what they say about deniers is terrible. Not only is it false, but it, it, it's, it's horrible to even say that it didn't happen. And you're also going to tell them that you met a guy that was really there. So don't give me any baloney. And uh, I've been doing it for... Since I came back wow. from there. I, I remember I was sitting in your home yes. the day before you left in the March of the Living. In the, the day before you left to the left. March of the Living, oh, yeah. I was in your home. Okay. And I knew nothing of the story. I knew that you were a survivor. I mm-hmm. knew that, but I knew nothing of the story. I only heard your story afterwards. So the two of you 
and I'm including this young lady. What about the camera? And the camera, all of you. You must keep the story alive. Not for any other reason, but to just to know what the past was and what it can be. When we look today and we see the anti-Semitism at the highest point since that disaster happened. There is also the fact that as far as we Jews are concerned, this is the greatest tragedy that has befallen the Jewish people. Without anything that you can mention, and we have had all kinds of killings and programs and, and different things thrown out of this country and that country and every country at one point threw us out and so on. And we, and we survived. We all survived. But we have to remember that this is the greatest tragedy that happened to the Jewish people ever. Probably the greatest, one of the greatest tragedies that has befallen mankind in history. And that's why we have to tell the story. That's why I have to tell the story. Wow. Wow. You know, what's amazing to me, and you're an unbelievable inspiration, but more than all of the inspiration that I get from you is the fact that after everything you've gone through, you still believe in God, but even more so, you still have a joy for, for davening and for praying. And when you pray, even just before when I was watching you sing and, and pray the Kol Nidre, it's from your heart, it's real, it's connected. It's your, your voice and your heart connected. And that after everything you have gone through, you still have this joy. You can still come into a shul, wear a yarmulke. It's an unbelievable thing. I know that for you, you just take it for granted, but it's amazing. Really amazing. Um, well, uh, the other day I told you I wanted to, I'm going, I'm becoming a, a Chabadnik. <laughs> and you said, no, 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 you have to stay the way you are. <laughs> but I, I think I, I, I probably will stay the way I am. <laughs> You're good the way you are. So we like you the way you so, are. So I won't spoil the Chabad movement altogether. It's not, it would, it's nothing to do, we're all one. It has nothing to do with that's you right. or them, us and them, it's, it's that's we're all why, one. And that's why I am inspired by you. I am inspired by you because you can look at any kind of a Jew or by, uh, probably any any person Come come into my tent. Come into my tent and eat. Come in my tent and sing. Come into my tent and 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 uh, pray. Yeah. If you want. If you don't want, just sit and look. Yeah. And that's what makes you special. 
And uh, as I tell my friends, he's my hero. You're my hero. You're my hero. No, 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 no. (laughs) I I, I actually, I want to tell everyone, I'm going to push the camera out a second. Um, back to, cause we were, we were being, uh, we're being, uh, socially distanced. Okay. I want to tell everyone, um, just give me one second. I'm just going to take off the mask. Um, I want to tell everyone the story behind the tent. So Rosh Hashanah, this beautiful tent. Now Yom Kippur, we're going to be doing Kol Nidre, and I can't wait to hear your Kol Nidre from your heart to Hashem, direct, under the stars. Hopefully, I want it's to tell, not going to call. No, it's not going to be called. Hashem's going to take care of us. And anyway, you told me in the forest it was cold yeah. and it was raining. I this is better. We have a shelter. Okay, you're going to talk. Because I was going to. But I no, think no, no, no. Hold better. on a second. Wait, wait. You're going to be better. Your connection is much better than mine. No, no, no. Your no. connection is much better. No, you I said, I give over. You're talking no, to God about it. No, no, you're closer than, than me. Look, in, in the forest, you had the same cold and rain without the shelter. We have shelter too. Okay. How well, bad could it be? We're going to try. <laughs> so, so, I'll tell you the inspiration behind the tent. Fischl, you called me. And at the time, we weren't sure what we were going to do for Yaakov. And the thought was, I knew that we couldn't do anything inside. We thought, maybe we'll do a little minion inside, socially distanced, 10 people. And for everyone else, we'll figure out some kind of situation. And we had all these different options that we were figuring out, visit people in their homes and, and send a, a package so they can do Yaakov by themselves. And then you said that even in the ghetto, you didn't miss a Rosh Hashanah, and you don't know what you're going to do this year because your doctor told you that you cannot daven inside with all right. the people. And so... Dr. Kratz. Yeah, no, well, before, before Dr. Kratz. Oh, before, yeah. Yeah, That's you correct. told me that your doctor said yeah, that yeah. You, you couldn't daven inside because too many correct. people. Correct, correct. And so I didn't know what I was going to do because I wanted to make, hypothetically, I wanted to make a tent. Then um, it happens to be I just moved, and my neighbor, my direct neighbor, um, is a Muslim, and he was the past president of the, the mosque right behind my home on Belgrave and the Maisonev. And he was telling me that he had a holiday coming up, and that he's an older man, and that he also, his doctor told him that he couldn't go into the mosque to pray. And he didn't know what he was going to do because he's never missed. And I heard from you, and I heard from this man. And you're you're about the same age, both of you, very young. That old, eh? <laughs> okay. And I thought to myself, I have an idea. So I said to him, can you give me the number to, to the imam or to the, per, the current president? So I called the current president, and he came to meet with me. And I said, let's make a deal. We will pay for the tent. You have the space because they have a big parking lot. The only parking lot, basically, the only open space that's within this area. There's not that many open spaces. No. They have the only open space. I said, will you provide the space and we'll put up the tent and we'll both use it. You'll have your holiday. So this young gentleman can, can enjoy his holiday. We'll have our holiday, so this young gentleman here could enjoy his holiday, and everyone will be happy. Anyway, 
he had to speak to the board and back and forth. It was a little bit of negotiation. Rabbi Yosh had to get involved to make sure that everything was uh, going well. But to make a long story short, this tent that we have here has actually happened because of you and this man and this, this collaboration between two faiths, between the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith that allowed this, uh, this experience for us. And so I think it's an amazing story. I, I also helped a little bit when you have to move out, remember? Yes, yes. Yeah. But, I, but I, what I'm saying is that for here, for this yomtiv, the fact that we can all come together, I think it's a beautiful story yes. for COVID. I haven't really told it uh, publicly. Um, I think you should. I think I should tell it publicly because I think it's a beautiful story during this time that everyone is distanced. The fact that we can all come together, together and help each other Look at, look at, imagine you came to a, a place like Canada where 70 years ago, you're trying to figure out in a huddling for Yom Kippur in a, in a room, in a ghetto, and here we have faiths coming together that are able to provide a Yom Kippur experience and just the contrast. And I, I just, I always have to focus on the positive because the contrast is so incredible. So incredible. Well, I, as I said, it's my duty. I, I, I need to help our own people, and all, and all people, the Jewish nation, and all people, and all people, all people. Uh, I do ninety percent of my speaking, and uh, when I tell my story. Uh, 90% is French. Wow, you, you just tell your story in French. 90%. Wow. Uh, How many so languages do you know? A few. <laughs> a whole bunch. I'm counting uh, five, uh, five that I know of. Wow. Well, six, seven. Eh, not so many. You know, that's, that's not many. I tell my students, they, one of the questions I get at the end, when they have questions, they say, uh, so that I could, you know, I, I, because I traveled with it. How many, how many, how many languages do you speak? So I tell them, I don't know, about six or seven, whatever. So, yeah, wow, that's a lot. I say, no, there, in the world, there are 200 languages. You speak six or seven, it's nothing. It's not even 5%. That's right. <laughs> so they all, <laughs> uh, I get a kick of really speaking to to the young students and to the uh, and I'm very thankful to God that um, I have a situation where in all the years that I've spoken to, to different groups, especially students, and these are 16, 17 year olds, 15 year olds, that, that, that they can destroy the class, you know, and where you stand and tear out the, the, the walls. But when I speak, they listen quietly and have questions. Wow. Most of the time. Wow. I, the biggest surprise that I ever had is just on the other side of Ottawa. The Ottawa River. Uh, Gatineau. Gatineau. Over there, I was invited to do a class. 
Then she calls me and she says, well, I, you know, we have, I have one more class. Maybe I'll combine them. So instead of you'll have 40 kids, you'll, get, you'll have 80 kids. Okay, fine. No problem. You can speak. You can speak to anybody. From, from five people to, uh, to more. Okay. So we, uh, Lorna and I go to Ottawa, my granddaughter was there. Uh, and so then I go across and I come into the, to the school. And I was late, I couldn't find where the school was, mindset. But, uh, so finally I get in, get to the school. School, they bring me into the, they have a hall, a big, a, they use it as a theater. Um, they, they, they teach, uh, they teach theater in, in the school. So they have a big auditorium. So I come in there and I open the door and it's full of people. Okay? I had to count and so I say, what, what's happening here? Oh, I forgot to tell you, we decided to do the whole school. <laughs> 260 kids. And they all sat and listened. Huh? They all sat and listened to you. All sat, sat. I was standing on the stage, the other stage. Uh, and I was standing on the stage, and it was quiet. You didn't hear a, a drop. Wow. For four, four, no, what am I saying to something? There were 400 kids, 420 or something. 420 kids. Wow. Wow. Okay? Wow. So that was really something. The most questions that I had, and very intense, was I spoke at the University of Sherwood. Big, huge. They have like 50,000, 60,000 students. It's a whole complex just outside of Sherman. Uh, so I spoke to a class. They were training to be teachers in high school. So they were working on their masters, uh, but they were training to be teachers. So they were very knowledgeable because they had to learn their history right. and this thing. Uh, so they uh, really asked very, very difficult questions, some of which we talk today and others, you know. Uh, Amazing. And uh, so I, that's what I do. I still have this, uh, this, uh, this moment. It must have been about four or five years ago that uh, I invited you to my uh, Rosh Hashanah table. Yes. I don't remember, what, for some reason you were able to come. I invited you a few times, but I think even the kids, I don't know, something happened with the kids, but you decided to come and I was shocked. And when you walked in, you saw my Rosh Hashanah table, was, uh, it wasn't a few people. You, if you remember. Okay, so now you think, now you only come here for the food. <laughs> It's okay. You're not the only one who just comes for the food. <laughs> and then um, 
had this, maybe it's, maybe it's just the cholent. The cholent, the cholent. Maybe that's what And I had this, you, you, you lifted the glass and you made the Kiddush, Rosh Hashanah, an opening Rosh Hashanah, and then you turned around and you, and there was all types of people, right? Jewish, not Jewish. And that's uh, right. I was sitting in the no. middle. You were in the middle, in the room. Yeah, but you Lorna, it. Lorna was there too. Yes, Lorna was with you, of course. Yes. And uh, there were people from Ecuador. That's right. And there were people, you know. So I, you know, so of course I spoke uh, Spanish. Yeah, and you were so. And then you turned around, speaking all different languages. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, and I remember the the people I spoke to. But you have here people that come on a regular basis that are. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Speaking. But I'm saying from Argentina, you, you were looking at the the Russians, and you were speaking in Russian and in Spanish and in French and in, and in that. And before the Kiddush, you just made this like this uh, this this speech in uh, a bunch of different languages and welcomed everyone for the new year. And it, for me, that was a moment to, to to watch you usher in the new year. It was a very special moment. Well, I I want to. I always like to speak to people in their own language. Yeah. If I can, you know, and that I, I, I enjoy it. Okay. And you're able to. Uh, most of the time, it's not going as good as the. I actually did it in Hebrew for a class from Concordia. And how was? I had some problems with certain technical words, so we made a deal. I said, look guys, we're going to do this. Uh, I, I, I really didn't want to, I didn't know if I could still do it. When I was in the DP camp for two years, we had this magnificent school. And I was, we were living in barracks, you know, in the American zone, 1946. It was still the American zone of Germany. Actually, it was not too far from Munich. So that's why I learned Hebrew. I mean, uh, the sitter was always had that since I was right. But you see, that's where you learned to speak Hebrew. But here to speak. So uh, and I spoke it ex extremely well at that time. Uh, and and it was fine, but I. So the guy that called me, I heard that, by the accent that in English that he was an Israeli. So we started right away to speak. How, how can you tell? Yes. <laughs> so they, uh, so I, I, I realized it. So we started to speak. Yeah. And he had called the Holocaust Center and uh, they gave it, gave, they told him to call me. Okay. Did he explain it? So we're talking on the phone. So we start speaking here. He calls me back. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. No problem. They have a group that they belong actually to Hillel, uh, but from different classes. They have a group, they had a group there of about 25, 30. And they were all Israelis, all Israelis. So, so he calls me back and he says, I don't want you to do it in English. 
I said, I said, you want French? <laughs> and he says, no, I want you to do it in Hebrew. Now, wait a minute. Just a second. <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure I can, uh, I can manage that there is. How do, you, how do you say Hashem? I don't know. <laughs> so uh, how do you say that? I don't know. So I have certain other things. Uh, first of all, some that I never knew and some that I forgot. I mean, it's only been 70-something years. That's it. I mean, a lot, you forget a little bit in that, <laughs> in that, in that uh, in, you know, when I was in the, the DP camp. So, I said, but I'll make a deal with you guys. I'll do it. But if I come to a place, I will continue in English. Wherever I have a difficulty, I'll continue with English. You don't have to tell you, what, tell you the word. So never mind. So I did it, but I stopped uh, several times. It was Hebrew. It, it, it was Hebrewish. Hebrewish, whatever you. It was. So uh, I stopped. Uh, I just changed very quickly into English and back into Hebrew. Wow. Yeah. So uh, before we uh, conclude, yes, we promised to the people some songs from the ghetto. And uh, we ask you to do some songs from the ghetto? Sure. Okay, I'm going to uh, stand up and talk my mask. Okay. Could you? Wow. Just to give you an idea, we've already been on for uh, two and a half hours. You can't make a... Why not? A video of two and a half hours. That's the beauty of being live. It just goes. Okay, let's get you set up over here. Look at this. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love how you need a stender in order to be able to sing. We have to do that. <laughs> so we're going to I'm going to do two songs that are uh, songs that were written in the ghetto and performed in the ghettos, in large ghetto and ghetto from large and ghetto from Vilna and so on. So the, the first one is called Ghetto. That's the name of the song, Ghetto. <clears throat> um, so um, this was written by a uh, um, a composer by the name of Kasriel uh, Brody in the Vilna Ghetto. Okay?
Wir stehen bei die Wand mit Herzen, mit Verklemmte, mit Arubie Hand, die bei erwähnen die Werbe. Es guckt Moiden starr und sinken ein tief in der Weitkeit. Uns bleibt in See der Zar die Ewigkeit. Schwer zu sehen die Welt durch enge Mäuern, die Schein umverstellt, die Ghetto teuren. Vermachst ihr euch nur, dann siehst du alles wie nach oben. Es erscheint wie euch da wo die größte Welt. Ghetto, dir vergessen will ich kein Mal nie. Ich hoffe, ist dein Herziger dann treurig lieb. Seh du deine Tränen, dein Lume, dein Pein. Herr du dein Gebet, was wird sein, was wird sein? In deine Ghetto gestern ist mir ein, das Hals soll übertrieb. Und was verstehst du, weh, doch ist mir so lieb. Ghetto, Dich vergessen will ich kein Mollnied. And now in English. We're standing by the walls with heartbreak lost, defenseless. With hands that hang and fall, just like the weeping willow branches, into void eyes stare, peering blindly through the denseness. Only pain there, the infinite pain. Hard to view the world. To crowded dwellings, tall gates of ghetto walls, all light dispelling. Yet when you close your eyes, then everything appears like dreaming, and you almost surmise the great wide world. Ghetto! In my memory, you'll never die. My lament is your heartfelt and your mournful song. I see all your weeping, your sadness I see. I hear all your pleas, what will be, what will be. In your ghetto, at least there's no room. Sadness, the heart sustains. And although I know the hurt, the love always remains. Ghetto, 
in my memory, you'll never die. So, um, let me bring the other song. So again, we're going to do this um, also. It's a song that was written in in the ghetto. Um, and uh, I'm going to do this partly in, in, in um, Yiddish and partly in English. Macht zu die Egelach, ot kumen fegelach, und kreisen dorum, zu hoppens von dein Weg, das Päckel in der Hand, das Heus in Asch und Brand. Wir losen sich mein Kind, suchen Glück. Now close your little eyes, soon little birds will fly and sink in circles everywhere. They'll flutter by your bed, your head upon your hand, the house in ash and sand. We leave my darling child in search of life. Die Welt hat Gott vermacht und umetun ist Nacht. Sie wart auf uns mit Scheude und mit Schreck. Wir stehen beide da in schwerer, schwerer Schock. Und wissen nicht, wohin es der Weg. Gott hat die Welt verdrängt. The black night fills each dawn. She waits for us with horror and with dread. We both are standing here with terror always near, not knowing where or where her a road has led. And hot and blows Verjocht von unser Haus in Finsternisch, getrieben uns im Feld. In sturem Hagelwind hat uns begleitet, mein Kind, begleitet uns in dem Abgrund von der Welt. Stripped naked we were thrown, Erased from our loving home, the darkest night to the open field. In Sturm, Hagel, Wind, 
Potun spagleit mein Kind, spagleit und sinnen Abgrund von der Welt. I think it's a great way to end our program. Any last words? Uh, I enjoyed very much being with with you and with the young lady. Um, I hope you can spread the word and maybe the camera will spread the rest. Uh, and so we, um, we have to recognize of what happened. And uh, one of the things that I always say, and, and I show some pictures of my, of that uh, of the some of the stories, I had a, an artist uh, do some some pictures of showing the shed and some of the other things. So I shared that, but I also have pictures that I show when I was five years old and six years old and so on. Um, and then towards the end, I show my whole family. So now there's a whole gang. Uh, I have four children, seven grandchildren, and I show the whole, the, I have one picture of everybody. And I say, you know, when I look back, no matter what they've done to us, we won. Hitler and his, and his killers lost. We're still here. We're all here. And we were, and we, and we are as good as we ever been. We are full. We won. He lost. And that's the story. And we're sealed in the book of life. And that's right. And we're going on with the book of life. The book of life that's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, 3,500 years or something. We're still here. No matter what they do to us, we will be here. We're here to stay. Thank you. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. 